invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as we continue on, we're going to be looking at verses 17 and 18 today. But just by way of reminder before we read those verses, it's always hard to know how far back to go, but at the beginning of chapter 2, Um, Paul exhorted the church to uh, humility, to consider others more significant than yourselves. So verses 1 to 5, he exhorted the church to humility. Then Paul went on in verses 6 to 11 to give the ultimate display of humility in the person and work of Christ. His act of coming and offering himself for those he came to save is the supreme act of humility um, as he laid aside Glory and took to himself human nature and, and, and obeyed his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then in verses 12 and 13, Paul resumed the call to obedience, as he says, to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And then he gets more specific in verse 14 as he calls us to not grumble or to be disputing. So this is part of what it means then, this is clear in 15 and 16, to have a a good testimony to the watching world, is to be a unified and contented church in the midst of darkness. That's how we be, one of the ways that we be a light. And then beginning in verse 17, as we'll see, and through to the end of chapter 2, Paul gives three further examples of humility. Obviously, these examples are not as ultimate, they're not ultimate as Christ is, um, but nevertheless, he gives real examples of actual redeemed sinners striving to do exactly what it is that Paul calls the Philippians and by extension us to do. Namely, three examples of people striving for humility and to put others first. And so in verses 17 and 18, we find the first of these three examples, and it is Paul himself as he expresses his heart and love for the Philippians And we will find in it insight into his own perspective on his life and his service. In short, what we see in verses 17 and 18 is the humble heart of a servant. And this instructs us as to our own pursuit of humility and Christian living. So let's read and we'll begin in verse 14 through to 18. The word of the Lord. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So as we look at uh, the humble heart of a servant, the first thing to note, first point of the outline, is that the heart of a servant is manifested in a life that is poured out on behalf of brothers and sisters. The heart of a servant is manifested in a life poured out On behalf of brothers and sisters. So Paul says in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I am glad. So if we think of the life of, of Paul, and particularly his, his ministry, we know, of course, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by the risen Lord himself, who appeared to him on the roads to Damascus. Um, Paul, as an apostle, possessed a unique ministry in the life of the church. Uh, Ephesians 2.20 talks about how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles are not repeated. They do not pass on uh, their apostleship to others after them. When the apostles died, so too went apostleship. They've helped form the foundation of the church, and then they were no more. Uh, what other, you know, there's, whatever the Church of Rome might say notwithstanding, whatever even those in charismatic circles say notwithstanding, where both these churches still hold to this apostolic secession and passing on this apostolic gift and so on, whether it's the, 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 the Pope ultimately as the, the successor to Peter or whatever the latest is in the more charismatic circles where they, they are naming apostles and laying hands on them. So this, this apostleship was unique in the early church. It's, it's a gift that we still benefit from every time we open the scriptures and read the scriptures that were uh, written by apostles like Paul. And so we know as he went around and evangelized and fulfilled his ministry that Jesus gave him as he uh, conducted himself as an apostle and, and, and had the authority of an apostle and wrote letters, scripture, we know that his role was unique amongst man, amongst the church. His service to Christ has a uniqueness that nobody else repeats. We are not going to repeat and do exactly what Paul did. And this is true, broadly speaking. Not every individual believer serves in exactly the same way. We don't all possess the same gifts. Christ has not gifted each person in the exact same way. We see this throughout the scriptures. Paul makes this clear in a number of places. Ephesians 4 is one such place. We have different gifts that accomplish different purposes and goals within the church, but all with the ultimate goal of being built up into maturity in the faith. Again, Ephesians 4 makes that quite explicit. So not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone is blessed with the gift of of mercy. But we all have spiritual gifts to serve within the church. So as we think of Paul, as we look at Paul as an example, of course, it's important to note we're not going to do exactly the same things that Paul did. But what we have to also see is that Paul's service to the Lord and to the church was born out of a heart, out of a mindset that all Christians are called to have, that we are called to seek, to pursue. What we see in Paul's words in verses 17 and 18 really is an expression of the mind of Christ that Paul has called us to Already in this letter. So if you think back to verses, uh, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus. So selfless Service for the good of brothers and sisters and counting others more significant than ourselves, that is not simply an apostolic matter. That is not simply something that a pastor ought to strive for. Rather, it is simply a function of, of 
being a believer is what all Christians are called to. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's Christ-likeness is what it is. Of course, as we've noted throughout, and we will continue to see as we go through the letter, the Philippians, as great of a church as they were, and they were a wonderful church that loved Paul, sent him help, even when others wouldn't, and were greatly concerned about him, they also had their internal division and their issues within and this is why Paul keeps coming back to, he's keep, well, he keeps, it seems like he's coming back. This isn't that long of a letter. We're just taking our time to get through it. But it keeps coming up as we progress through this letter. And as we'll see even into chapter 4, as we've said, he's going to address Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord and have these others try to help these two women agree in the Lord. And so this attitude of of. of Considering others more significant, of putting others first, this humility is expressed, as Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. What does he mean by this? Well, a drink offering was an offering in the Old Testament that went alongside of various other sacrifices. It was not a standalone thing in and of itself. It went with other, it, 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 it complemented other sacrifices. So, for example, in Numbers 15, 1 to 10, there Paul, or Paul, sorry, Moses gives instruction uh, about various sacrifices that were given. And he instructs the people to offer drink offerings. These were drink offerings of wine alongside of these other offerings from their herds. So, whether he says there, whether they're offering an offering at one of the prescribed feasts or festivals or whether they are just coming to bring a freewill offering to the Lord. If they offer an animal, then they are to offer a grain and drink offering alongside of it. The larger the animal that they were offering as a sacrifice, the larger the drink offering was to be. It would range from what he says there in Numbers 1 from just under a liter to about a liter and three quarters. So this, this was a, 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 an offering that accompanied kind of the main offering, if you will, the main animal. Pagans in Paul's day also had drink offerings as well, although Paul almost certainly had in mind here the Old Testament and the Old Testament drink offerings. So as he's writing to the church in Philippi, even those who would have come out of a pagan background, and even if they weren't super familiar with the Old Testament, they would have had some understanding of what Paul's getting at here as he references drink offering. And now for Paul, this analogy of being poured out as a drink offering was a picture of his life being poured out unto death. His life being poured out unto death in the service of another offering, in the service of true worship. So in in 2 Timothy 4, 6, um, which, which is written... You know, it's the last known letter of Paul's that we have written near the end of his days. He sees that his time is running out. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul was confident when he's writing 2 Timothy that his martyrdom was coming. And that's what he meant when he said, 
that he was already being poured out as a drink offering. This is a reference to his death in the service of the Lord, in the service of true worship. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So so Paul likens himself to the, the drink offering. And the main offering here is said to be the sacrificial offering of your faith. The main offering in mind here is the Philippians themselves. The Greek words that are translated here as sacrificial offering in the ESV literally are sacrifice and service. And so many English translations keep the wording that way. The New American Standard, King James, NIV, they say uh, the sacrifice and service of your faith. The word sacrifice refers to an offered animal, as we would think of an Old Testament sacrifice, while service is referring to a priestly service. That is a ritualistic kind of service, a religious service. And so the reason it's rendered in the ESV as it is, sacrificial offering, is that the two words taken together are clearly referencing a single idea, that of a priestly sacrifice, a priestly offering. So when the ESV says there, upon the sacrificial offering, it's not meaning it's an offering that really costs them a lot. That's one way we sometimes use sacrificial. Uh, we, if we think of sacrificial giving, well, it's giving that kind of hurt me because it, it, it cost me a lot. Uh, that's not exactly what it's getting at. It's talking about um, a priestly offering, that kind of sacrifice. So Paul is again continuing with drink offering and sacrificial offering. He's using Old Testament imagery. And while his own life is compared to the drink offering, it is the faith of the Philippians that is likened to the main offering. He says the sacrificial offering of your faith. It could be that the faith of the Philippians itself is the offering, but it's likely referring to their works that arise from their faith, meaning their works, obedience that spring forth from their faith, their their very lives. That's what he's referring to. That's their offering themselves to the Lord. This kind of language is used in other places in the New Testament. Romans 12.1 is one such place after Paul has elaborated on the mercy of God, on the gospel throughout the first 11 chapters of Romans in chapter 12 and verse 1. He draws inference from those chapters. He says, to present your bodies, therefore, as a living sacrifice in light of the mercies of God. So again, it's that imagery of an, of an Old Testament sacrifice, a burnt offering of sorts, to present your bodies, your very lives then, in light of the mercies of God, in light of what he has done for you and purchasing you and forgiving you, your sins are forgiven. Now, now as, as one who is trusting in him, who belongs to him, offer your bodies as perpetual worship to him. Everything that you are in everything that you do. So let's, let's put this together here in, in Philippians 2. In verse 16, Paul called on the Philippians to hold fast the word of life, lest his labors would be in vain. And again, as we noted a couple weeks ago when we looked at that verse, this, that kind of statement from Paul would, would summon forth from the Philippians a response of, may it never be. The thought of not finishing, the thought of Paul you know, having his labors be in vain. These, these, this church clearly loved Paul. As you read through Philippians, it's evident. Paul also did have a confidence in them that they had possessed a true and, and a real faith in the Lord. And then in verse 17, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. 
So the thought of his labors being in vain, this was a disturbing thought to Paul. But if his life was poured out and if even death came his way as a result of his service, if that happened while the Philippians were bearing fruit and living themselves unto the Lord and offering themselves and holding fast to the word of life, bearing the fruit of saving faith, then Paul would, and in fact he did, rejoice in that. He does not mind spending his life, even giving his life, for the sake of the church. And so he likens it here. His own death would be a compliment to them, to their faith, to their service to God. It would be an accompanying act of worship, not even the, the main focus for him. He, he can die, but if the Philippians are living unto the Lord and trusting in him, He's glad to be of service to that end. If we were just looking at this, we would probably put someone's martyrdom as the main event, as the greatest of the offerings in view here. And of course, there is a sense in which that's true. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. If Paul is literally laying down his life in the service of Christ and in the service of the churches, that's a, a wonderful thing. But from Paul's perspective, his view of this, he sees the lives of these precious believers in these churches as the primary offering. And his own death is an accompaniment to that. It's the drink offering poured out alongside of it. The priority here for Paul is on others. So again, here is the mind of Christ that we are called to, looking to the interests of others. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, Paul said, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's Paul's attitude towards these churches, towards these other believers. And you know the Corinthians, you've read First and Second Corinthians, that they, they weren't the easiest church. And yet, even so, he will gladly spend and be spent for their souls. This mindset is a convicting reality to consider, to think about. And as I said, we all have different giftings, but we are called to use those in the interests of others. This again, this is Paul's purpose throughout this chapter, and it's a major theme in this book. So I would encourage you to renew your minds here in this, to remember, to recall that it is good, that it is right to put others' interests ahead of your own, to die to self. I would encourage you to, to develop uh, and stir up concern for brothers and sisters in the Lord. Love for the brothers is one of the most, you know, John talks about this, one of the sure signs of faith. And if you don't love the brothers, then you don't possess faith, not saving faith. And of course, love, as we think of loving others, it's more than just simply a feeling. I get a good feeling uh, when, when I think about other brothers. That can certainly be part of it. 
but it's obviously more than that. I think we understand that. It is expressed in willing service and in laying down our lives for one another as needed. So note again, the heart of a servant is manifested in a life poured out on behalf of brothers and sisters. Secondly, the heart of a servant rejoices in all true service to Christ. The heart of a servant rejoices in all true service to Christ. It's not as if Paul just grudgingly pours himself out for others because he's got to, and that's just what he's got to do, so he does it. Remarkably, the man rejoices in it. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad, he says, and I rejoice with you all. The possibility of his own death doesn't stop his joy. Especially as he thinks about these precious saints to him. As he thinks about them offering up their own lives to the Lord, trusting in him, seeking to live obediently to him and to shine as lights amid the dark world. He rejoices in this. We talked when we were back in chapter 1 about Paul's uh, situation as he wrote Philippians. He was writing this letter under house arrest in Rome. So if you think of the book of Acts, the book of Acts ends, and he ends up in Rome, and and Acts just sort of cuts out abruptly, uh, sadly, in one sense. Uh, It's God's wisdom, of course, but... Um, but it just ends. He's in Rome, but he's still under arrest. Sometime after that is when Paul, in all likelihood, wrote the book of Philippians. He was awaiting trial. And as we saw back in chapter 1, there were uncertainties about the outcome of that trial. He did, in, in chapter 1, state confidence that he would be released, that he would again see the Philippians. He said that in, in verses 23 to 25. Nevertheless, Paul seemed to understand that his situation wasn't guaranteed. And he know, and I'm confident he was under no delusion about the future, that he understood at any time he could be back in this very situation, even if he was released the next day. And so he says, even if I am poured out, even if it comes to that, even if that's what's happening right now, I am filled with gladness, he says. I am glad. And of course, as we read from 2 Timothy, we know that when he did get to the end of his race, he was still of that opinion. He still viewed it as a pouring out, uh, as a drink offering. But again, the joy that's expressed here is not mainly about Paul and about his own situation. He has a joy in the Philippians. He is glad He rejoices to be a drink offering upon their own offering of themselves. And he rejoices with them in their lives of faith. Again, the heart of a humble servant of Christ rejoices where true service is found. I think we can imagine if we are in Paul's position or somebody in Paul's position just resigning themselves to their fate, so to speak. Just sort of, well... I'm powerless here, so I've just, I guess, you know, I've just got to get on with it, figure this out as best I can, and there's nothing I can do. If one was unjustly accused, as Paul was, if one had been held under house arrest, their freedom completely, almost completely taken away for more than two years at this point, we can imagine just kind of, well, someone just going along at some point, just doing what they got to do to get on with it. Again, just kind of grudgingly getting on. 
but to do so with gladness, to do so still rejoicing in these other believers who are still out there, these other believers who have a greater freedom than Paul. This is another matter. This joy, this gladness is a condition, it's a a disposition of the heart. It's something that's not easily faked, at least not if one is honest. Uh, Certainly, we can fake, uh, we can put on a, a happy face, we can certainly fake it to other people. We can put on a show, certainly, but to be alone... In, under house arrest, as Paul was, without news agencies to tell your story, uncertain about many things, and to still be able to rejoice is a remarkable display of the fruit of the Spirit. And we see this throughout Paul's life. In fact, when, when Paul and Silas went into Philippi and preached and established the very church he's writing here in this letter, back in Acts 16, You recall, he was arrested. Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. And they were done. That that happened to them unjustly. Certainly, in terms of, from from the point of view of righteousness, what is righteous and just, that was unjust. But even according to the Romans' own laws, it was unjust. And yet, what do we find Paul doing in prison with Silas? Acts 16.25, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners are listening in. Of course, it goes on to talk about the Philippian jailer. You recall that story. For Paul, he was not just concerned about his own circumstances. He was concerned with the greater glory of God. He was concerned with the good of the Lord's people. It was similar to what John wrote, the Apostle John in 3 John. Verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's similar to what Paul lived, what Paul understood, where Paul's joy came from. The servant of Christ has a heart that rejoices in the faith and service and the good of their brothers and sisters. This is an important part of aspect of the humility to which Christians are called. And so I would ask you, what are the things that bring you joy? Obviously, there are a lot of good reasons to be joyful. God gives a lot of good gifts that it's right to be thankful for, to take joy in. We, we talked about that even when we were in Ecclesiastes. It's good to be thankful. It is good when God gives us good gifts to rejoice in those things. But is faithfulness of other believers on that list? Is the good of your brothers and sisters one of those things that does cause rejoicing in your heart? Do you have joy when you see or hear of other brothers and sisters standing firm? When you see evidence of uh, a brother or sister dying to himself or herself? Here is a good test of our hearts. A test between you and God, ultimately. Do you rejoice in the kinds of things that God rejoices in, including the good of his church? If you do, and if you work toward more greatly prizing the things of the Lord, 
This will be a tremendous aid to you when any trial comes your way. Paul was laid low, but he could still be glad and even rejoice in the faith and good deeds of others. The heart of a servant rejoices in all true service to Christ. Thirdly, the heart of a servant stirs up spiritual mindedness and joy in others. The heart of a servant stirs up spiritual mindedness and joy in others. So after saying that he is glad and rejoices with the Philippians in their faith and service, he says in verse 18, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So here's what I understand happening here. In the end of verse 17, he says, I am glad. So Paul is glad. He's content in his own situation to be poured out if that's what's happening. And he says, I rejoice with you all. That is, he rejoices in their acceptable service to the Lord, in their offering to the Lord, in their lives. So in verse 17, Paul is the joyful one, glad in his own situation and rejoicing with the Philippians and theirs. And now in verse 18, he calls on the Philippians to share this joy with Paul. It is a summons to rejoice even in Paul's sufferings. Even if he is poured out in death, they should still rejoice in his service. Just as he rejoices in their service, so they too should rejoice in his, even if he pays the ultimate price for it. I think we can understand why this instruction would be helpful or even necessary. It would be natural to mourn Paul's death as he, if he were martyred and killed, to, to lament it. We could understand even being Maybe even a bit panicky about it. This, this apostle is gone. Now what do we do? And yet Paul exhorts them to gladness and joy. And we might wonder how that can be. Obviously, you understand that losing someone you love is painful. That it's, it's sorrowful. And the, and the scriptures don't deny that. I don't think we just pretend this doesn't hurt. It's painful, it's sorrowful, especially if you consider what Paul was staring at, the possibility of martyrdom, being unjustly condemned and executed as a criminal, really for doing nothing other than speaking the truth, for proclaiming what the Lord himself has told Paul to do. The the outrage that that would foster within and anger and, 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 and cause people to be upset. I think we, we can understand that. We see something of that when we see injustice and mistreatment, especially of our brothers and sisters when they do what is good. The only way this kind of exhortation really makes sense is if one possesses a spiritual mindedness, the sort of thinking that can see the beauty of a life poured out even unto death in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. A mindset that understands that the one who loses his life for Christ's sake will yet gain it. That understands and grasps the grace of God that is on display in saving a man like Paul and sanctifying him to such an extent that he would give up his very life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing that he once tried to erase from the surface of the planet. Indeed, that is a reason to rejoice. A reason to give God praise and glory. 
even in the midst of certainly mourning. In this exhortation to rejoice, Paul is stirring up spiritual mindedness and joy. And we see this kind of thinking, this spiritual mindedness throughout the scriptures, obviously, but the book of Philippians. Back in chapter 1 and verse 20, when Paul was talking about his imprisonment and what's going to happen, he said, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That's the mindset that would allow Paul to be glad, even at the prospect of his own life coming to an end in the service of the Lord. That would allow him to yet rejoice in the fact that there is a Philippian church where there wasn't one before that, that, that are that's filled with people who are seeking to offer themselves unto the Lord each day, trusting in Christ. Eventually, we'll come to chapter 3, verse 20. I want to read a few verses, starting in verse 17, where we see this thinking again come out, this spiritual-mindedness. Brothers, he says, Paul, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory, their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. These, these people he's talking about who will perish under the wrath of God as he's talking about this even through tears as he thinks about this, their minds are set on earthly things. But in contrast to that, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's mindset, his thinking, this spiritual mindedness that he is seeking to raise up in the Philippians church, that he's trying to stoke within them, to think this way. We see this throughout the scriptures, Hebrews 12, 13. I think we referenced this, I think I referenced this last Sunday. It says, therefore, let us go to Christ outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He even uses that Old Testament imagery of sacrifice to speak of the, the, the worship of the church. And here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the mindset that would allow Paul to rejoice, even if he's being completely trampled on, unjustly, undeservedly, maligned, very few people there to support him and help him. 
but he can still have joy. He's still thinking of the Philippians, rejoicing in their faith, and still writing them, trying to stir them up to continued faithfulness, to press on, to hold fast the word of life. We need to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ in this matter. To conform our thinking to this, to possess this mindset that Paul has. We need this all the more as society becomes increasingly slanted against Christianity. Increasingly wants to abandon reality. We are, as Peter said, sojourners and exiles here. We must understand that our efforts to influence our society even toward what is good, toward what is upright, it may or may not produce results that we desire. Likewise, our efforts to evangelize, we don't know what all will become of that. Will lots of people come to faith? Will there be revival of sorts or will it fall on deaf ears? We don't really know. But even should our efforts to speak to our neighbors and our authorities about what is just and all of this come seemingly to nothing if it's not producing the desired results that we would hope for, that we've even prayed for, we are still not to be those who devolve into or who give way to anger or to panic or to fear. Of all people, of all people, we can suffer loss because this is not where our primary citizenship resides. We can afford to suffer in this life. Of all people, we can learn contentment in any and every situation, as Paul himself had to learn, and as he expresses in this same letter in chapter 4, verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul possessed this thinking, but he didn't just keep it to himself. He sought to stir it up in the Christians around him and those he served in the churches in Philippi. So likewise, let us be those who not only seek to think this way for ourselves, but to to encourage this thinking amongst our brothers and sisters. To stir one another up to joy, to spiritual mindedness, to contentment in the sure promises of the covenant of grace. This is different than putting our head in the sand and just pretending things are fine. Right? Learning contentment doesn't mean everything's equally as easy. It doesn't mean that everything that happens God uses all things for our good, but it doesn't mean that everything should be called good. We understand that and we know that, and yet we think of the promises of God to his people that we receive, have received through Christ, the inheritance that yet awaits us, and we can still go through our days without tearing the rest of our hair out that we have left, 
and just becoming bitter and angry about everything. We have to be on guard against this. Doesn't mean we don't speak up. Doesn't mean we don't use honorable means to better a bad situation. By all means, we do those things. But the spiritually minded person will also seek glad submission to the Lord, whatever the outcome of all these efforts. Rejoicing doesn't evaporate. So if you want to stir up some spiritual mindedness in yourself and and, and perhaps in others as well, just just a couple of suggestions. None of this is is radical or, or new, but just reminders. First of all, obviously, read and study the scriptures. And this can be done in different ways. You can read through it fast to try and catch the the big picture, the themes, see the whole forest. Or you can slow it right down and pull apart individual sentences and phrases and words. There's tools to help. Study Bibles, commentaries. If you want those things or need help, uh, talk to us. I'd, I'd love to help you find something that would be of use to you, to help you understand, to help you in your daily reading. I would encourage you to read books, biographies of those who have exemplified this very spirit. Biographies can can be one of those things that is greatly edifying to consider the lives of of those who've heeded Scripture, imperfect men and women, obviously, but who nevertheless laid down their lives in service to the King. And again, even in our day, we're not... Maybe not all of us are, are big readers. We have audiobooks, lots of audiobooks. We have so many resources. That's not our, you know, we don't, that's not an excuse for us. Prioritize these things. I would encourage you to renew your mind in meditating on texts like this one. And which we've read earlier, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 12.15, here we have no lasting city. I mean, there's these truths, these texts to memorize, to think about these things, to try to lead your soul in these matters by meditating on the word. Prioritizing church gathering as often as you can make it. Fellowship with brothers and sisters in the home, at church as well. And of course, pray to be much in prayer. In all of these things, we're called to be deliberate. Remember back in verse 12, work it out. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Sanctification is a work of God, but he calls us to use the means that he has given us. And many of these things I've just mentioned are means that God has given us. Scripture reading, church worship, etc., prayer, So let us avail ourselves of them and avail ourselves of them as often as we can. Let us exhort one another to the promises of the word, to hold fast to them, and to possess spiritual mindedness and joy in Christ. Of course, you and I will never be humble enough servants of the Lord. We will never 
reach the end in our lives. We will strive for this perfection from now until the day we die, and we will never attain it. We can never be humble enough to justify ourselves. Our pursuit of humility is not going to be completed in this lifetime. Christ alone is the perfect, humble servant. He is the servant who bore the transgressions of many, who came in humility to take up the obligations of his people. He has been slain under the wrath of God as a sacrifice for sinners. And he has risen from the dead and is now at the Father's right hand, interceding for his church, and it is from there that he will one day return. Again, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior. He will return, he will make all things new, and there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. And so, again, make that your boast, make that your soul rest and hope of salvation. you believe in him, you are forgiven. He will complete what he has begun in you. And so he is worthy. As his child, he is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your trust in good times. He is worthy of your trust in bad times. He's worthy of your trust in life when all is well. And he is worthy of your trust when facing death. Your works of service and works of humility do not add a thing to what Christ has accomplished, but are rather the sacrificial offering that arises from faith in him. This is an important distinction lest you become discouraged in your pursuit of humility, in your pursuit of Christ-likeness. And it is those of faith who possess, as Peter wrote, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you so much for your mercy to us. We thank you for your compassion. We are grateful for salvation that is made sure and certain by your Son coming and by all that he has accomplished. Father, may that be our our rest and our hope. And where we come under conviction, which is a merciful thing by your Spirit, I pray that we would gladly have that exposed, that we would confess it to you as it is, sin, and that we would then rest in Christ and then get back to striving to offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Father, I pray that you'd make us a people, increasingly so, who would love one another. Father, I'm so thankful for the evidence of your grace in our midst and the love that there is here for one another. 
Father, I pray that you just stir that up all the more. We know there's always room to grow in all of these areas. We pray that you would do that very thing. Father, help us in our homes, in our church, to consider others more significant than ourselves. Help us in our workplaces, wherever we find ourselves, Lord. Help us to indeed shine as lights in this darkness. God, you are worthy of praise. I pray that you would help us to not become bitter or angry at what we see around us. That you'd fill us with compassion. Even as we read Paul talking about his tears as he speaks of enemies of the cross. Father, we have, there's so much sanctification yet to be done in us and we pray that you would be pleased to do it for your own namesake and your own glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.